43. Uses wholly unedited. Now, if we multiply the houses by the rooms in them, and then divide by the number of the population, we should find that there will be an average of three attics and two sitting rooms for each family of five persons, or an attic and a half with one parlor for every two and a half individuals, and though one person and a half would find it inconvenient to occupy a sleeping room and three quarters. I think my calculation will show you that the accounts of the insufficiency of lodging are gross and wicked exaggerations, only spread by designing persons to embarrass the government. With regard to the starvation part of the question, I had made every possible inquiry, and it is true that several people have died because they would not eat food, for the facts I shall bring to your notice will prove that no one can have perished from the want of it. Now, after visiting a family, which I was told were in a famishing state, what was my surprise to observe a baker's shop exactly opposite their lodging, whilst a short way down the street there was a butcher's also. The family consisted of a husband and wife, four girls, eight boys, and an infant of three weeks old, making in all fifteen individuals. They told me they were literally dying of hunger, and that they had applied to the vestry, who had referred them to the guardians, who had referred them to the overseer, who had referred them to the relieving officer who had gone out of town, and would be back in a week or two, not even supposing there were a brief delay in attending to their case, at least by the proper authorities, you will perceive that I have already alluded to a baker's and a butcher's, both it will scarcely be believed at the home office in the very street the family were residing in being determined to judge for myself, I counted personally the number of four pound loaves in the baker's window, which amounted to 36 while there were twenty-five two-pound loaves on the shelves, to say nothing of fancy bread and flour ad libitum, but let us take the loaves alone, thirty-six loaves, each weighing four pounds, multiplied by four will give one hundred forty-four pounds of wheaten bread, to which must be added fifty pounds the weight of the twenty-five half-cudians, making a total of one hundred ninety-four pounds of good wholesome bread, which, if divided amongst a family of fifteen, would give 12 pounds and 14 fractions of a pound to each individual, knocking off the baby, for the sake of uniformity, and striking out the mother, both of whom might be supposed to take the fancy bread and the flour, which I had not included in my calculation, and in order to get even numbers, supposing that 194 pounds of bread might become 195 pounds by overweight, we should get the enormous quantity of 15 full pounds weight of bread, or a stone and one fourteenth, more, positively, than anybody ought to eat, for the husband and each of the children except the baby, who gets a moiety of the rolls belonging to the starving family, you will see, sir, how shamefully matters have been misrepresented by the anti-corn law demagogues, but let us now come to the butcher's meat, it will hardly be credited that I counted no less than fourteen sheep hanging up in the shop I had alluded to, while there was a bullet being skinned in the backyard, and a countless quantity of liver and lights all over the premises, knocking off the infant again for the sake of uniformity, you will perceive that the fourteen sheep would be one sheep each for every member of this family, including the mother, to whom we gave half the rolls and flour in the former case, and there still remains to say nothing of the entire bullock for the baby of three weeks, which no one will deny to be sufficient a large quantity of lights, etc., for the cat or dog, if there should be such a willful extravagance in the family, with these facts I close my report, and I trust that you will see how thoroughly I have proved the assertion of the Duke of Wellington that if there is distress, it must be in some way quite unconnected with a want of food, 
for there is plenty to eat in every part of the country, I shall be happy to undertake further inquiries, and shall have no objection to consider myself regularly under government. Yours obediently. Punch. The Tea Service on Sea Service. Lord Jocelyn, in his recent work upon China, while writing upon the pastimes and amusements of the people, expresses great satisfaction at the entertainment afforded travelers in their private assemblies, though he confesses, as a general principle, he should always avoid making one in the more promiscuous the air of APPLEBIDE. Chapter VII contains a very fair bill of fare. Simultaneously with the last court of the last quadrille the important announcement was made that supper was ready a piece of information that produced a visible commotion among the party. Young gentlemen who had incautiously engaged old or ugly partners evinced a decided desire to get rid of them, or, by the expression of their countenances, seemed to be inwardly cursing their unfortunate situation. Young ladies in whose bosoms the first, slight predilection, had taken up a residence, experienced, they knew not why, a mental and physical prostration at the absence of Orlando Sims or Tom Walker, who how provoking, were doing the gallant to some, horrid disagreeable coquettes, mamas, who really did like a good supper, and considered it an integral portion of their daily sustenance, crowded towards the door that led to the comestibles, fearing that they might not get eligible situations before the solids, but be placed among the bashful young gentlemen, who linger to the last to pull off their gloves in order to pull them on again, and look as though they considered they ought to be happy and were extremely surprised that they were not. The arrangement of the supper table displayed the deep research of Madame Applebite and Wadley got in the mysteries of gastronomical architecture. Pagodas of barley sugar glistened in the rays of 36 wax candles and four argon lamps parterres of jellies, graveled round with ratafias or balanced with lemon peel, trembled as though in sympathy with the agitated bosoms of their delicate concocters custards freckled with nutmeg clustered the crystal handles of their cups together sarcophagi of pound cakes frowned, as it were. Upon the sweetness which surrounded them whilst fawn-colored elephants from the confectionary menagerie of the celebrated Simpson of the Strand stood ready to be slaughtered, huge stratified pies courted the inquiries of appetite, chickens boiled and roast reposed on beers of blue china bedecked with sprigs of green parsley and slices of yellow lemon, tanks of golden sherry and woundy thirsty revelers, and never since the unlucky desert of Mother Eve have temptations been so willingly embraced. The carnage commenced spoons dived into the jelly knives lacerated the poultry and the raised pies a colony of custards vanished in a moment the elephants were demolished by ivories, the sarcophagi were buried and the glittering pagodas melted rapidly before the heat and the attacks of four little ladies in white muslin and pink sashes. The tanks of sherry and port were distributed by the young gentlemen into the glasses and over the dresses of the young ladies. The tipsy cake, like the wreck of the Royal George was rescued from the foaming ocean in which it had been embedded. The diffident young gentleman grew very red about the eyes, and very loquacious about the next set after supper, whilst the faces of the elderly ladies all over Lyroon looked like the red lamps on Westminster Bridge, and ought to have been beacons to warn the inexperienced that where they shone there was very little water. The violent clattering of the plates was at length succeeded by a succession of merry giggles and provoking little screams occasioned by the rapid discharge of a park of bonbons, anglicy, teeth, the one pierce, where the slight predilection was reciprocated. The Orlando Simpsons and the Tom Walkers were squeezing in beside the blushing idols of their worship and circling the waists of their divinities with their arms, in order to take up less room on the route stool. Mamas were shaking heads at daughters who had ventured upon a tenth sip of a glass of sherry, 
Papas were getting extremely jocular about the probability of becoming granditos. Everybody else was doing exactly what everybody pleased. When Mrs. Applebite's Uncle John emerged from behind in a pern, and vociferously commanded everybody to charge their glasses, a requisition which nobody was bold enough to dispute. Uncle John then wiped his lips in the tablecloth, and proceeded to inform the company of a fact that was universally understood, that they had met there to celebrate the first dental dawn of the heir of Applebite. I have only to refer you, said Uncle John, to the floor of the next room for the response to my request namely, that you will drain your glasses, and, in the words of nephew Agamemnon Columpsion Applebite, partake of our dental delight. This eloquent address was followed by immense cheering and a shower of sherry bottoms, which the gentlemen in their entusimusi scattered around them as Hesperus is reported to dispense his teetotal drops. Nothing could be going on better no woman could feel prouder than Mrs. Wadleydot. When we hope you don't anticipate the catastrophe when two of the argon lamps gave olfactory demonstrations of dissolution. Sperm oil is a brilliant illuminator, but we never knew anyone except an Esquimo, or a Russian who preferred it to a lavender water as a perfume. Old John was in a muddle of misery evidently and was only relieved from his embarrassment by the following fortunate occurrence, by the by. We have just recollected that we have an invitation to dinner. Reader au revoir. New works now in the press. An abstract and brief chronicle of the times. Very small duodecimo. By Mr. Roebuck. A new dissertation on the anatomy of the figures of the multiplication table. By Joseph Hume. Outlines of the late ministry. After ten years deniers. By Lord Melbourne. Recollections of place. By Lord John Russell. Mythological tract upon the heathen deity Cupid. By Lord Russellan. Explanatory annotations on the abstruse works of the late Joseph Vogel Joe Miller. With a humorous etching of his tombstone. And original epitaph. By Colonel S.I.B.D.H.O.R.P. Also. By the same author. An ornithological treatise on the various descriptions of waterfowl showing the difference between Russia and other ducks, and why the former are invariably sold in pairs. A few words on indefinite subjects, supposed to be Sir Robert Peel's future intentions, by Mr. W.A. Cayley, American Congress. We hasten to lay before our readers the following authentic reports of the latest debates in the United States Congress, which have been forwarded to us by our peculiarly and especially exclusive reporters. New York. The greatest possible excitement exists here agitating alike the bosoms of the whites, the browns, and the blacks, the universal sympathy appears to exist among all classes, the greater portion of whom are looking exceedingly blue. The all-absorbing question as to whether the war is to be or not to be, seems an exceedingly difficult one to answer. One party says, yes, and another party says, member, and a third party says the above parties, lie in their teeth, and thereupon issue is joined and boy knives are exchanged the, yes, walking away with, nose, shift in the middle of his back, and the, no, making up for his loss by securing the, yes, somewhere between his ribs, all the black porters are looking out for light jobs, and rushing about with shutters and cards of address, bearing high-minded, loco focos, and shot down, democrats, to their respective surgeons and houses, this unusual bustle and activity gives the more political parts of the city an exceedingly brisk appearance and has caused most of the eminent surgeons, not attached to either party, to be regularly retained by the principal speakers in these most interesting debates. In Congress great attention is paid to the comfort of the various members, who are all provided with spittoons, 
though they are by no means compelled to tie themselves down to the exclusive use of those expectorant receptacles, on the contrary, much ingenuity is shown by some of the more practiced in picking out other deposits, a vast majority of the Kentuckians will back themselves to shoot through the opposition member's nose and eyeglass without touching flesh or flints. The prevailing opinion appears to be that should we come to a fight they will completely alter the costume of the country, and walk us into fits. Their style of elocution is masterly in the extreme, redolent with the sagest deductions, and overflowing with a magnificent and truly eastern redundancy of the most poetical tropes. I will now proceed to give you an extract from the celebrated speaker on the war side, the renowned Jonathan J. Twang. I rather calculate that tarnal, peasant, alligator of a ring-tailed, roaring, pestiferous, rattlesnake, that critter the old country, would just about give up one half its skin, and wriggle itself slick out of the other, ray for them go for to put our dander up at this present identical out-and-out important critical crisis, I conceit their ministry have got just about into as considerable a tarnation as the fix, as a naked nigger in the stocks when the mosquitoes are steaming up a little beyond high pressure, I guess Prince Albert and the big UNs don't find their seats quite as soft as butter deals in a mud bank, Look here isn't it considerable clear they're all funking like bird cayenne in a clay pipe, or couldn't they have made a race somehow to get a ship of their own, or borrow one, to send after that caged-up coon of a McLeod? It's my notion, and pretty considerable clear to me. They're all bounce, like bad chestnuts, very well to a look at, but come do try them at the fire for a roast, and they turn out puff and shell. They talk of war as the boy did of whipping his father, but like him, they dare isn't do it. And why not? Why? For the following elegant reasons, since they have been used to the advantages of doing their little retail trade with our own go-ahead and carry all before it writes like up an end double distilled essence of a genuine fine and civilized country. The everlasting possums have become habituated to some of the manners of our enlightened inhabitants. We have nothing to do but refuse the supply of cottons, and leave them all with as little shirts to their backs as wool on a skin deal. Isn't it the intercourse with this here country that enables them to speak their very language with something rafer like a legal correctness, though they're just about as far behind us as the last gent of the Caesar is from his eye tooth? Doesn't all international law consist in keeping an everlasting bright lookout on your own side, and jamming all other varmints slick through a stone wall, as the wagon wheel used up the lame frog? Here, here, I say and mind you I'll stick to it like a starved sloth to the back of a fat babby I say. Gentlemen, this country, the United States particularly Kentucky, from which I come, and which will whip all the rest without straws and rotten bulrushes again pike, magnet, mortars, and all their almighty fine artillery, I say, then, this country is considerable like a genuine facsimile of the wagon wheel, and the pretty Oneazi busted up old worn out island of the bullheaded Britishers, ain't nothing more than the teetotally used up frog, here, here. I expect they'd have just as much chance with us as a muzzled monkey with a hickory nut. Talk of their fleet. I'll bet six live niggers to a dad coon. Our genuine Yankee clippers will whip them into as bad a fix as a flying fish with a gull at his head and a shark at his tail. They're just about as much out of their reckoning as the pig that took to swimming for his health and cut his throat trying it on. It's everlasting strange to me if, to all future posterity coming after us. The word MacLeod don't shut up their jaws from bragging of British valor just about as tight as the death squeeze of a boa constrictor round a smashed up buffalo. If it was single quote and single quote T for the distance and leaving my plantation, I'd go over with any on you. 
and helped to use up the lot myself. Let them come on, as the tiger said to the young kid, and see what I'll do for you. They talk of sending out their chaps here, today, let them, they'll be just about as happy as a toad in hot tar, and that's a fact. Here Jonathan J. Twang sat down amid immense cheers, at the conclusion of which, Mr. Peter P. Pelican, from the backwoods, requested me, Peter P. Pelican, being from Orleans that Mr. Jonathan J. Twang would retract certain words derogatory to the state represented by Peter P. Pelican, Mr. Jonathan J. Twang replied in the following determined refusal, I beg to inform the last speaker, Mr. Peter P. Pelican, from the backwoods, that I'll see him teetotatiously tarred, feathered, and physicked with red-hot oil and fish hooks, before I'll retract one eternal syllable of my pretty particular correct assertions. This announcement created considerable confusion. The president behaved in the most impartial and manly manner, indiscriminately knocking down all such of both parties who came within reach of his mace, and not leaving the chair until he had received two black eyes and lost two front teeth. The general melee was carried on with immense spirit, the more violent members on either side pummeling each other with the most hearty and legislative determination. This exciting scene was continued for some time until during a short cessation a member with a broken leg proposed in adjournment till the following day, when the further discussion could be carried on with boy knives and pistols, this proposition was at once acceded to with immense delight by all parties, if well enough as I have two broken ribs, my share of the row I will forward you an authentic statement of this interesting proceeding, epitaph on a candle, a wicked one lies buried here, who died in a decline, he never rose in rank, I fear, Though he was born to shine, he once was fat, but now, indeed, he's thin as any griever, he died, the doctors all agreed, of a most burning fever, one thing of him is said with truth, with which I'm much amused, it is that when he stood, forsooth, a stick he always used, now winding sheets he sometimes made, but this was not enough, for finding it a poorish trade, he also dealt in snuff, if ear you said, go out, I pray. He much ill nature showed, on such occasions he would say, the, if I do, I'm blowed, in this his friends do all agree, although you'll think I'm joking, when going out he said that he was very fond of smoking, since all religion he despised, let these few words suffice, before he ever was baptized they dipped him once or twice, S-I-B-D-H-O-R-P on B-O-R-D-H-W-I-C-K, Power Sithorp, while speaking of the asinine qualities of Peter Borthwick, remarked, that in his opinion that respectable member of the lower house must be indebted to the celebrated medicine promising extreme length of years, and advertised as fire, fire, a remonstrance with the 9th of November, how melancholy an object is a polished front, that vainglorious and inhospitable array of cold steel and willow shavings, in which the emancipated hearth is annually constrained by careful housewives to signalize the return of summer and its own consequent degradation from being a part of the family to become a piece of mere formal furniture, and truly in cold weather, which thanks to the climate, for we love our country is all the weather we get in England, the fire is a most important individual in a house, one who exercises a bland authority over the tempers of all the other inmates for who could quarrel with his feet on the fender, one with whom everybody is anxious to be well for who would fall out with its genial glow one who submits with a graceful resignation to the caprices of every casual elbow and who has never poked a fire to death, one whose good offices have endeared him alike to the selfish and to the cultivated, that once a host, a mediator, and an occupation, 
we have often had our doubts but then we are partial whether it be not possible to carry on a conversation with a fire, with the aid of an evening newspaper by way of interpreter, and in strict confidence, no third party being present, we feel that it can be done. Was there an interesting debate last night? Were the ministers successful? Or did the opposition carry it? In either case, did not the fire require a vigorous poke just as you came to the division? And did not its immediate flame, or, on the contrary, its dull, sullen glow, give you the idea that it entertained its own private opinions on the subject? And if those opinions seemed contrary to yours, did you not endeavor to betray the sparks into an untenable position? by submitting them to the gentle sophistry of a poker nicely insinuated between the bars, or did you not quench with a sudden retort of small coal its impertinent congratulation at an unfortunate result, until, when its cordial glow, penetrating that unseemly shroud, has given evidence of self-conviction, you felt that you had dealt too harshly with an old friend, and hastened to make it up with him again by a playful titillation, more in jest than earnest, but this is all to come. Not yet with us had the kindly old bars, reverend in their attenuation, been restored to their time-honored throne, not yet had the dingy festoons of pink and white paper disappeared from the garish mantle, still desolate and cheerless shows the noble edifice, the gaunt chimney yawns still in sick anticipation of deferred smoke, the irons, innocent of coal, and polished to the tip, skulk and cower sympathetically into the extreme corner of the fender, the very rug seems ghastly and grim. Wanting the kindly play of the excited flame, we had no comfort in the parlor yet, even the privileged kid, wandering in vain in search of a resting place, deems it but a chill dignity which has withdrawn her from the warm couch before the kitchen fire, things have become too real for home, we have no joy now in those delicious loiterings for the five minutes before dinner those casual snatches of stern, those scraps of steel, we have left off smiling, we are impregnable even to a pun, what is the day of the month? Surely were not October retrospectively associated in April and glorious May with the grateful magnificence of ale. None would be so unpopular as the chilly month. There is no period in which so much of what ladies call unpleasantness occurs. No season when that mysterious distemper known as warming is so epidemic. As in October, it is a time when, in default of being conventionally cold, everyone becomes intensely cool. A general chill pervades the domestic virtues. Hospitality is aguish, and charity becomes more than proverbially numb. In twenty days how different in appearance will things swear. The magic circle round the hearth will be filled with beaming faces, a score of hands will be luxuriously chafing the palpable warmth dispensed by a social blaze, some more privileged feet may perchance be basking in the extraordinary recesses of the fender. We shall consult the thermometer to enjoy the cold weather by contrast with the glowing comfort within. We shall remark how time flies and that, it seems only yesterday since we had a fire before, forgetful of the hideous night and the troubling dreams that have intervened since those sweet memories, and all this in twenty days, we are no innovators, we respect all things for their age, and some for their youth, but we would hope that, in humbly looking for a fire in the cold weather, even though November be still in the store of time, we should be exhibiting no dangerous propensities, if, as we are inclined to believe, fires were discovered previously to the invention of Lord Mayors, wherefore should we defer our accession to them until he is welcomed by those frigid antiquities Gog and Magog, wherefore not let fires go out with the old Lord Mayor, if they needs must come in with the new, wherefore not do without Lord Mayors altogether, and elect an annual grade to judge the prisoners at the bar in the mansion house, 
and to listen to the quirks of the facetious Mr. Gobbler, an appropriate gift, we perceive that the fair dames of Nottingham have, with compassionate liberality, presented to Mr. Walter, one of the Tory candidates at the late election, a silver saver, what a delicate and appropriate gift for a man so beaten as Master Walter, the pretty dears knew where he was hurt, and applied a silver sav we beg pardon, saver to his wounds, we trust the remedy may prove consolatory to the poorer gentleman, not a step farther, the diminutive chroniclers of animal chatter, called small talk, have been giving a minute description of the goings-on of his grace of Wellington at Walmer, they hint that he sleeps and wakes by clockwork, eats by the ounce, and drinks and walks by measure, during the latter recreation, it is his pleasure, they tell us, to use one of Payne's pedometers to regulate his march, thus it is quite clear the great captain will never become a male do, the post office in Downing Street has been besieged by various inquirers, who are anxiously seeking for some information as to the expected arrival of the Royal Mail, curious synonyms, Sir Peter Lorry discovered during his residence in Delome that those the French for veal, on his return to England, being at a public dinner, he exhibited his knowledge of the tongues by asking a brother alderman for a slice of his wheel or woe. Happy land! Six young girls, inmates of the Lambeth workhouse, were brought up at Union Hall, charged with breaking several squares of glass. In their defense, they complained that they had been treated worse in the workhouse than they would be in prison, and said that it was to cause their committal to the latter place they committed the mischief. What a beautiful picture of moral England this little anecdote exhibits. What must be the state of society in a country where crime is punished less severely than poverty? Old England, blessed and favored crime, where paupers to buy prisons run, where poverty is the only crime that angry justice frowns upon. The new state stretcher. What an uncomfortable bedfield has made for himself. Observed Normandy to Palmerston. That's not very clear to me, I confess, replied the Downing Street Cupid as it is acknowledged he sleeps on a bolstered cabinet, the Pacificator of Ireland closed his face for the remainder of the day, the latest case of monomania, from our own specially raised American correspondent, a gentleman who fancied himself the pendulum always went upon tick, and never discovered his delusion until he was carefully wound up in the Queen's bench, very like a whale, the first of all the royal infant males should take the title of the Prince of Wales, because he's clear to seamen and to a lubber, Babies and whales are both inclined to blubber. Arrived at last, we perceived by a paragraph copied from the John O'Groats Journal, that an immense whale, upwards of 76 feet in length, was captured a few days since at with Sir Peter Lorry and Alderman Humphrey on reading this announcement naturally concluded that the wick referred to was our gracious queen with, and rushed off to Buckingham Palace to pay their united tribute of loyalty to the long-expected Prince of Wales. Epigram. I'm going to see a letter. Dick, some wax spray give to me, I have not got a single stick, or wax I'd give to me, the pictorial history of Parliament, in our last we briefly adverted to the gratifying fact that Mr. Barry had at least a thousand superficial feet on the walls of the new houses of Parliament at the services of the historical painters of England, and we also, in a passing manner, suggested a few compositions worthy of their pencils. A reconsideration of the matter convinces us that the subject is too important to national, to be adopted as nearly the fringe of our article, and we have therefore determined within ourselves to devote our present essay to a serious discussion of the various pictures that are, or ought, to decorate the interior of the new House of Commons. As for the House of Lords, 
we see no necessity whatever for lavishing the fine inspirations of art on that temple of wisdom, inasmuch as the sages who deliberate there are, for the most part, born legislators, coming into the world with all the rudiments of government in embryo in their baby heads, and, on the 21st anniversary of their birthday, putting their legs out of bed adult, full-grown lawmakers, it would be the height of democratic insolence to attempt to teach these chosen few, it would, in fact, be a misprision of treason against the sovereignty of nature, who, when making the pioneer of a future peer of England, knows very well the delicate work she has in hand, and takes pains accordingly, it is different when she manufactures a mob of skulls which, by a jumble of worldly accidents, or by the satire of fortune in her bitterest mood, may ultimately belong to members of the House of Commons, these she makes, as they make blocks in Portsmouth Yard, a hundred a minute, all she has to do is to fulfill her contract with the world, taking care that there shall be no want of the raw material for members of Parliament, leaving it to destiny to work it up as she may, we have not the slightest doubt, by the by, that poor nature is often very much confounded by the ultimate, 